Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about Three Kingdoms, Three Friends. We have, of course, already talked about Three Kingdoms on this podcast, both the history and the literature. The real history of the period and the 14th century novel, The Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which is a substantially historically accurate retelling of the events of the period, which stretched from the late 2nd century AD to the late 3rd century AD. But I think we are more than justified in doing multiple episodes on Three Kingdoms. There are so many stories and so many interesting personalities from that era. Indeed, it is arguably the major problem with the novel. Its overwhelming abundance of characters, each one with his or her own personality and backstory and words and deeds. Moreover, as I've said before, in my mind, the romance of the three kingdoms is the Chinese Iliad. And it is surely telling that it is this era of decline and collapse that so dominates the Chinese imagination. Of what exactly? I cannot say. As both history and literature, the stories of the period form such a foundational part of Chinese culture that it is impossible to understand that culture without having good knowledge of three kingdoms. It is also impossible to move through a culturally Chinese space without encountering symbols from and references to that era. Not too long ago, for example, I ate dinner at a Cantonese dim sum restaurant in the trendy Ximending area of Taipei. I went in, sat down, and looked up. And there it was on one wall, a depiction of the meeting of the three friends who kick off chapter one of the novel. Since I cannot overstate the importance of these three friends in Chinese culture, and since there are endless characters to talk about, from Three Kingdoms, let's simply focus on these three for today, even though we, of course, already mentioned them before. At the beginning of the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, a millenarian cult known as the Yellow Turbans has thrown the Han Dynasty into chaos. Hundreds of thousands of rebel troops are sweeping across the empire, threatening its authority. At this time, the imperial court issues an edict of desperation, calling for patriotic men across the country to rise up and help the authorities in putting down the yellow turbans. One man, named Liu Bei, sees the edict. This is how the romance describes him. This man is not particularly fond of his studies. He has a 
gentle personality and is a man of few words who doesn't show his feelings easily. He has always harbored tremendous ambition and likes to befriend heroes from across the realm. He is seven foot five inches tall. Note the Han Dynasty measure translates into 173 centimeters or five foot seven today. His ears are so long as to touch his shoulders, and his arms are so long that his hands stretch below his knees. Indeed, he is able to turn his head and look upon his own ears. His face is like white jade. His lips are red as rouge. Now, I must say that I've always felt that this physical description of Liu Bei is not to be taken literally, because in real life, a man who looks like that would just look very strange. And the romance tells the story of three kingdoms from Liu Bei's perspective, taking his side. Treating him as the party that ought to triumph by the end of all this chaos. So, a strange physical description goes with a Chinese tradition of ascribing unusual physical attributes to those destined for greatness. It's a phrenology of a kind. Later in the book, the romance describes another man of destiny. As having blue eyes and a purple beard, there are no Chinese people with blue eyes. Never mind a purple beard. That being said, through the rest of the book, Liu Bei's enemies will sometimes taunt him as the guy with the big ears. Why is Liu Bei destined for greatness? The book explains that he is a descendant of Emperor Jingdi of the Han, one of the good emperors of the Han Dynasty. In a later chapter, after Liu Bei meets Emperor Xiendi, the young monarch technically on the throne but by now powerless to influence events, Xiendi brings out the family tree to trace Liu Bei's ancestry. And establishes that he is an 18th generation descendant of Emperor Jingdi. After 18 generations, though, Liu Bei's branch of the family has lost its wealth and position, and become essentially commoners, running a business, weaving and selling straw mats for a living. Later, his enemies will taunt him as. The straw mat peddler. When Liu Bei was a child, a huge mulberry tree happened to stand next to his family home. From a distance, the tree looked like the canopy that shielded an emperor's carriage. And as a child, while playing with other children, Liu Bei would say that one day he will become emperor and ride under such a canopy. Okay, so Liu Bei, now in his twenties, twenty-eight in the novel, twenty-three in history, sees the edict calling for young men to go fight the yellow turbans, and he turns around and meets Zhang Fei. 
This is how the romance describes Zhang Fei. He is eight feet tall. That's one hundred eighty-three centimeters today, or six feet, with a leopard head, circular eyes, a swallow's chin, and a tiger's beard. When he talks, it sounds like thunder, like a herd of horses running by. Though it doesn't say so here, later depictions of Zhang Fei will always show him with dark skin. So much so that Westerners in China often mistake portrayals of him for those of a black man. Zhang Fei tells Liu Bei that basically he's rich. His family has plenty of real estate, and he's just been thinking about using some of his money to fund and raise an army to go fight the yellow turbans. Liu Bei says, "Hey, that's terrific! Let's do it together." So they go to a bar for a drink and to talk some more. At the bar, they meet a big guy named Guan Yu. This is how the romance describes Guan Yu. His body is nine feet tall. That's two hundred and seven centimeters, or six foot eight today. While his beard is two feet long. His face is the color of dates, and his lips that of rouge. He has phoenix eyes and silkworm brows. Regarding this physical description of Guan Yu, I want to point out something that didn't occur to me until quite recently. Phoenix eyes and silkworm brows is a phrase that in Chinese immediately brings to mind. Guan Yu. Yet, phoenix eyes is a descriptor in Chinese usually applied to women. Not surprising, as the phoenix is also often associated with femininity, while the dragon is associated with masculinity. This is interesting because, as you shall see, Guan Yu goes on to become. The paragon of masculinity in Chinese culture, the definition of a manly man. All right. So Liu Bei and Zhang Fei meet Guan Yu. Guan Yu explains that in his home village, there was a rich and powerful man who exploited the villagers, and Guan Yu killed him, and then had to run. He's been on the run from the law for five or six years now. And now that the imperial edict calls for young men to join the army, he plans on doing so. Seeing that all three of them want to do the same thing and are now fast friends, Zhang Fei proposes that they go to his estate, which has a lovely peach garden, where the flowers are just in bloom. There they can undergo the ceremony in Chinese tradition, whereby best friends. Can swear brotherhood to each other, to vow to be each other's brothers from different mothers. They do exactly that, and famously swear, although we were not born on the same day of the same month of the same year, we wish to die on the same day of the same month of the same year. The peach garden has since become a symbol of 
undying friendship in Chinese culture. Three friends then hire blacksmiths to forge new weapons for them. Liu Bei gets a pair of swords, Zhang Fei gets a spear, and Guan Yu gets what in English is called a glaive, a single-edged blade at the end of a pole. Attesting to Guan Yu's cultural influence, the glaive in Chinese is called a guandao, meaning the machete of Lord Guan. Later depictions of Guan Yu will always show him with his glaive, and Zhang Fei will usually carry a spear. Liu Bei, as the eldest and leader of the three, is not always shown with arms, but is treated as first among equals. Okay, I cannot tell you the whole story of Three Kingdoms here. That would be way too complicated. But, long story short, many lords and generals rise up during the collapse of the Han Dynasty, either to try to usurp power for themselves or to try to defend the rightful authority of the throne. The three friends fight among the many contestants of this time. They begin rather unpromisingly with few followers and little land and resources. And they suffer their share of defeats. But eventually, they and their associates come to control southwestern China, one of the three kingdoms for which this era is known. And like I said, the romance and the traditional view of the era takes their side as the side of justice and virtue. This is first of all because Liu Bei is among the warlords of the era who fight to defend the Han Empire rather than to usurp it. Of course, he is an imperial relative himself, albeit a distant one. And Liu Bei has a gift of backing into positions of power by initially declining those positions. Just as George Washington famously demonstrated that he had no wish to become a king by resigning his power, so Liu Bei, when offered the governorship of this province or that, repeatedly declines the appointment or recommends someone else in his stead. Also, at a time when warlords would often kill anyone who offends them at the drop of a hat, Liu Bei often chooses the path of forgiveness and mercy. To what extent the historic Liu Bei was sincere in these gestures, and to what extent he calculated that said gestures would cause people to regard him as a force of benevolence, is hard to say. In reality, he was surely a bit of a politician. Even in fiction, remember that the romance tells us that even as a child, Liu Bei declared that he would one day become emperor. Indeed, after Emperor Xiendi is forced to abdicate in 220 AD, Liu Bei declares himself emperor and his kingdom a continuation of the Han Dynasty. Tragically for him, he has a son, an heir, who is pretty much an idiot. The kid's name, Ato, is now a proverbial expression in Chinese for someone who, even if you try your best to help him, simply cannot be helped. 
And so Ado ultimately runs Liu Bei's kingdom into the ground. What about Zhang Fei? Zhang Fei is one of the greatest warriors of his age. The romance depicts him as a man of unflinching courage as well as remarkable fighting skills. In one episode, Zhang Fei guards a bridge alone, like Horatius Cocles from ancient Rome, knowing that thousands of enemy troops are bearing down on him. When the enemy troops arrive, Zhang Fei barks from the bridge, daring any of them to approach. No one dares. So we say about Zhang Fei, one man stands guard, and 10,000 men cannot defeat him. He is also shown as a simple, straightforward man who always says exactly what he feels. We previously talked on this podcast about the difference between classical Chinese and baihua, or plain speak, which is everyday spoken Chinese. The romance is written in a mixture of classical and plain speak. But when Zhang Fei speaks, he usually speaks in baihua, plainly. But by no means is Zhang Fei stupid. On multiple occasions, he comes up with intelligent stratagems. Even Liu Bei often says to his friend that sometimes he thinks of him as a simpleton. But that's certainly not true. Even so, he is a flawed character, being both prone to anger and to alcoholism. On a number of occasions, he drinks too much and suffers defeat because he is drunk or hungover. Also, sometimes he beats his soldiers without good cause, leading some of them to resent him and betray him. These character flaws ultimately prove to be his undoing. Two of his underlings, resentful of being beaten by him, murder Zhang Fei in his sleep, cut off his head, and run off to a rival warlord. Finally, Guan Yu, arguably the one friend who ultimately leaves the greatest impact on Chinese culture. Guan Yu is also a great warrior, even greater than Zhang Fei. And if Three Kingdoms is the Chinese Iliad, then Guan Yu is the equivalent of Achilles. The romance, though, doesn't necessarily depict Guan Yu as the best fighter of his time. In one chapter, all three friends fight another general, Lü Bu, at the same time. And Lü Bu is shown holding his own against all three, suggesting that he is a better fighter than Guan Yu. But Lü Bu lacks moral character and repeatedly betrays friends and mentors, ultimately leading to his demise. Guan Yu, in contrast, is considered the embodiment of virtue. This is interesting. Remember that when he is first introduced in the romance, he is said to have murdered a local rich man who bullied the poor. Traditional Chinese morality therefore seems to say that violence is not wrong when it is deployed on behalf of the defenseless poor against the rich and powerful who would exploit them. Guan Yu goes on to exhibit all the chief virtues 
that Chinese tradition admires in a man. First of all, he is loyal to his chosen cause and to his friends. In their early careers, the three friends suffer repeated defeats. In one instance, the three come to be separated from each other, and none knows whether the others have survived. At this time, another warlord, Cao Cao, says to Guan Yu, "Since you don't even know if your friends are still alive, why don't you come work for me for now?" Guan Yu replies, "Okay." But you need to understand that as soon as I hear news of them, I am leaving. At the same time, Guan Yu also takes care of Liu Bei's two wives. Cao Cao then tries to win Guan Yu's loyalty so as to keep him, giving him endless gifts, including a prized crimson horse from Central Asia. But sometime later. Guan Yu hears that Liu Bei is alive and in a different part of the country. Despite the many gifts and favors from Cao Cao, Guan Yu immediately resigns his post and leaves. Famously, he escorts Liu Bei's two wives across a vast stretch of hostile territories to reach his friend. At five different checkpoints, six different generals try to stop him. Guan Yu fights each of them, beats each of them, and kills each of them. Guan Yu also exhibits the key virtue of justice. If someone has done him a good turn in the past, he must repay the favor if the opportunity arises. When later he has to fight the army of Cao Cao, and he captures Cao Cao, the man reminds him. That when Guan Yu had nowhere else to go, he took him in. Thereupon, Guan Yu sets him free, even though doing so is definitely contrary to his own interests. Guan Yu displays courage. Obviously, he displays this virtue repeatedly through many battles, but perhaps most famously, in one instance, he is wounded in the arm. By a poisoned arrow, the doctor comes and says, "Well, I have to cut through the muscle, all the way down to the bone, and scrape the venom off the bone." Guan Yu says, "Okay, go ahead." Remember, of course,、uh, there is no anesthesia at this time. So Guan Yu sits there while the doctor is doing his thing. And there's blood everywhere. And Guan Yu says to one of his officers, "Hey, why don't you sit down across from me, and we can play a game of chess." And so he plays chess even while the doctor is slicing through his arm, until the operation is finished. <laughs> Ultimately, Guan Yu is defeated and killed. And of course, the real life. Guan Yu was only a mortal man, and by no means perfect. He had his character flaws, pride among them. But in the Chinese imagination, the figure of Guan Yu as the perfectly manly man has grown so much larger than life that over the centuries, 
the Chinese have come to worship Guan Yu as a god, often described as the Chinese god of war. Guan Yu is held up as an equal to no less than Confucius himself, as Confucius is the leading figure in the scholarly realm. So Guan Yu is the top personality in the martial realm. Even though in life the real Guan Yu only achieved the rank of Marquis, and even though it was his friend Liu Bei who declares himself an emperor, as a god, Guan Yu is often called Emperor Guan. You can find his temples basically everywhere across the Chinese world. You can find his temples in Vietnam. You can even find shrines dedicated to him in Chinese-owned businesses all around the world, because he is thought to also function as a kind of god of wealth. Next time you're in your local Chinese restaurant, look around, and you may just find a statuette of him in the corner. You can recognize him by his red face, his long beard. And the glaive he carries in his hand. He may even be riding or leading his famous crimson horse. Guan Yu appears in subsequent literature as well, really in too many places to count. But here's one fun example. In one short story, the Chinese American sci-fi fantasy writer Ken Liu imagines Guan Yu reincarnated as an immigrant. Panning for gold in the American West in the 19th century, and in one story in his collection, Taipei People, the Taiwanese author Bai Xinyong describes three Republican military officers swearing brotherhood to each other in emulation of the three friends in the Peach Garden. Thus, the cultural influence of the three friends. And Guan Yu, in particular, redounds through the ages until today. So it is that, like I said at the beginning of this episode, you cannot understand Chinese culture without knowing about them. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.